So I'm here at the uh, 5900 Michigan Avenue uh, site that is currently being used by Occupy Detroit, Unite Detroit, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm having a very compelling conversation. There's a video component of this conversation that you'll be able to find on the YouTube channel. But I'm going to go ahead and have him reintroduce himself uh, for you guys today. So go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. My name is Craig Hamilton. I have a little bit of a cold, so uh, forgive the tone. I'm a bit soft-spoken when it comes to uh, very important things I feel I should uh, relate to someone. So forgive me if this is not the pace suitable for your listening. But Oh, I'm sure we'll be fine. So now we were discussing a little bit about some of the, the magical moments that you had of bonding with different people at the park when we were at Grand Circus Park. Um, could you relate a little bit more about that? How far back should I go? Wherever you think, basically wherever the story takes you, um, there should be a moment in particular that you'll, it'll call to you and you'll decide to start there. And it's not like I'll never talk to you again, so. Well, uh, let's see. Well, I was there for 30 days, so if I have to press the rewind button, it would always start from the beginning. And uh, day two, I started moving. Uh, so to speak. I just started doing what I saw was out of place and what I knew I could work on. I woke up to, uh, obviously, you know, this this whole kind of clustering of people gathered at one end of the park, and really people would wake up in the morning and expect uh, directives to what this movement was going, and people would wake up confused, confused. Uh, I'm delirious from the night before, and uh, I started motioning to, uh, at the time, we had a workplace called uh, LAX, which was a club, and uh, they needed people to keep an eye on the door overnight. I employed myself, uh, I'm very easy to, it's very simple for me to sit and watch and observe. Uh, as I repeated many times to those who may be listening and were there, uh, eyes and ears, uh, to be very, very observant. And there was a lot of gaps and things. Um, and at the same time, I met a lot of people that were also paying attention to those gaps and realized they had things that could bridge that gap. Uh, fast forwarding a little bit, later on that week, uh, after our security detail was dismantled, uh, really we were fending for ourselves. Uh, I know there's a few interviews out there, whether they made it to air or not, that I gave at four in the morning during those security details. A lot was going on. Um, and what I was seeing was um, basically people weathering out survival. And uh, there were those off the street who did not know what we were doing. And we had an open soup kitchen and really were out to take what they could and harm, um, what they couldn't get, and see themselves out. And uh, I'm restless, both in mind and in body that uh, if I cannot trust those around me, I'd trust myself to watch those. And uh, I was up for, I believe, four or five days straight. And doing security detail, I had to intervene these folks that wanted to take from us, that we were willingly to give in. And uh, the state of mind they were in, I, uh, I 
quickly establish myself that I, I'm not here to harm you or stop you, but I want to let you know that what we're doing here is nobly for your benefit. And they stopped. It was disarming. And uh, they sat and pulled up a chair, and they they got warm, and we fed them something. And as the week progressed, uh, more and more folk went through that process, went through that conversation I was having at 3 or 4 in the morning with them. Stop. Hey, what's going on? And uh, they realized that they had to kind of pay attention to what was going on. Um, I'll take a breather here and say that uh, it went on to many moments like that until October the 21st, um, the day of the Bank of America rally, when uh, we were quoted um, from many people in the street from Occupy Detroit and of the uh, police who were stopping us. Get out the street. Get out the street. We replied, whose streets? Our streets. And uh, I smile at that. I wasn't there, but I smile at every time I hear that. There you go. So, um, now that I'm holding the mic here, uh, I'll have to refrain on the uh, visual aspect of much of my, um, yeah, much of the narration here. But uh, since this is audio, you probably will just get what I'm saying. well, the 21st was a very important day, uh, both out and inside the park. Um, various things were going on by noon at the same time as that rally that uh, I think were sent up cosmically. And Stop me if I'm getting a bit religious in tone, but there was something large, uh, less of a better word, that was going on. And I think people quieted themselves down to realize it was less about them and the people around them and more about what was universally happening. Um, at about 11.30, 12 o'clock p.m., uh, people started to stop their conversations. So they started to listen, started to keep their eyes and ears open as I was already, and uh, realized they were all saying the exact same thing. Their entire lives were saying the exact same thing. And smiled, and laughed, and hugged each other, embracing the concept that this was finally um, unity, that the entire world failed in many instances. Um, They were succeeding in, and more so a part of now, of this unity, that was really unspoken and it was uh, beautiful to observe this Uh, I was again at the northeast corner of this park uh, after morning conversations and we had a band that was setting up to play and people were milling around again confused again semi-delirious at the amount of time they were just there waiting for something to happen and the band started playing and people stopped and danced and laughed and realized that what people were setting out that park for disaster was not going to happen and they were part of that uh, that situation and they were in control that they were here for peace 
that they were here for unity, that they were here for community, that they were here for a lot of very positive things, not so much the right or wrong, but the positive things, that movements like this go on to be infamously written down for, and it was nothing short of beautiful. Uh, it, it escapes words to really put into, I guess, vocabulary to describe to you how how amazing this was. It was something out of a movie, if you will. You know, we, we had people on bikes doing tricks, and people, chalk was on the floor, and kids, and birds, and the fountain, and, and the traffic from Woodward, and, and Adams, and it just all of a sudden, people were there, and they saw the park. It was this uproar of just beautiful things. Um, and if you weren't there, you'd probably read about it. You'd probably see a documentary about it. You'll probably hear someone tell you a story as I'm doing to you. Uh, but it was it was spiritual. It was a spiritual awakening. And uh, if you can hear this, and uh, if you can read any material that you would gather posthumously of this conversation, you'd realize that that day and days like it were bigger than the world. And uh, people around the world knew it, and in their own way, probably carried it on to this day, um, what happened in that park. Uh, a lot of people counted us out from the beginning with... Uh, with other movements that happened before that had, you know, one type of conversation, that had one type of uh, motive, when this was really beauty, beauty by natural design, that there was many conversations, that was many motives, but the one thing that people forgot, both in that park and outside the park, on Facebook, on other discussions, that this was moving towards one shining point of light, that we were all moving for positive things. And whatever your argument was, it also ended up being a part of that movement, too. Um, and really, if you wanted to be a provocateur, if you wanted to destroy things, it was counterproductive, it was seen. It wasn't so much that you were wrong, you were just not moving where we were going. And there was way too many people riding this wave. And the most beautiful thing about it is that no one would was given any type of written down directive no one was given any type of uh instruction it was it was again spiritual it was again very cosmic and whether or not you're a religious person um if you're listening to this you already know and you should act upon it uh this is pretty much the only advice i've given to people one sign i've probably seen photoed with is uh occupy your mind stop talking start doing is that uh, all of human history is has led up to this. And what people need to realize is every day that you're waking up is the first and the last day that day will be lived. And uh, Occupy Detroit really is seeking for the future and seeking that every day awoken to is towards this movement, towards this point of light that we don't know yet, but it's positive and it's, it's shining down on us every day. Um, and it, it really had me stay in that park. I didn't have really had anywhere else to go. Um, I was homeless, so really that park, that tent, was all my own. And the people in it were my family, and really were looking out for me. And um, 
you, you would go online trying to seek points of uh, information about what happened or what's going on with Occupy Detroit. But if you're not out there, you know, connecting with these folks, you're not getting off of the the online entity. You're not taking those flyers and you're showing up at the rally. You will never meet those people. You will never know where this where this thing's going. At least personally, you should make it a a mission to fight for where that light is coming from and, and start moving. You will have support. You will have people standing next to you, crafting their own instruments. Uh, as I said to uh, Neil, who uh, is you know really overseeing this conversation, that uh, what I said in the first few days is that this is an orchestra, and we are to make this very beautiful symphony it's very beautiful composition, but we all have to find our own instruments. We all have to even build our own instruments, some of us, and play this composition, parts of which are unwritten, parts of which have never been written. And uh, we really need to take it, the responsibility upon ourselves to see that. Um, and really, that's what this movement's about. All of the conversations are of this movement. And uh, we really, really need to understand that personally before we can mutually come to an agreement. Um, I really hope that anybody who's listening to this takes this into effect before if they go to our any of our general assemblies, that what is happening is a process, an ongoing process. No one's here to fight for a solution. No one's creating a re resolution. But what they are doing is contributing and creating this process. So refer to Occupy Detroit in your mind, not a, not as a, a stand or uh, or like the civil rights movement, uh, a definitive uh, you know synopsis of many things in history, but this is history happening and that this is a process like history. And uh, if you want to be a part of it, you have to realize what you can do and do well before you can commit yourself to even associating with what this is about and uh, knowing what that is about. And um, just to say, I think that uh, one of the elements of this process, as you were saying, I think is something you see during the General Assemblies, during the consensus process, is uh, people's minds slowly merging and communicating in a way that was not previously available to them. And the other thing that I think is amazing about Occupy in particular is the diversity of the groups of people that are here. And, I mean, I've lived on both sides of, for example, the racism issue, because I lived in the South where people of color were hated, and I've lived in Pontiac, Michigan, where people who were white were hated, <laughs> at least where I was. And I think it's absolutely amazing the way that all of these diverse groups come together, and all of those differences just seem to, to melt away, like they're just not there. Um, and I think that's a large part of that process. People coming into a General Assembly and not understanding that the goal is to try to kind of unify everyone's perspective at the same time and give respect for it um, won't really get it right away, and they have to have that patience. Do you want to elaborate on that? No. Uh, well, I, I think that was beautifully said. It, it fulfills a lot of the sentiment that those who actually are leaving those General Assemblies and doing instead of just deliberating, uh, we feel very heartfelt and really unites us, uh, at least the working side of things. That is what unites us, that this is a process. We have to respect the components being built into this process, each each to our own right now. And 
we have to keep our eyes at this direction that we're moving to isn't going to is it going to fulfill itself in the destination unless we are really moving with each other, that we're really slowing ourselves down to keep together, to keep our arms locked and uh, respect each other. I mean, again, uh, one of the things I've said to many people I've met in this park was that the key word here is occupy. Now, what that means uh, in many senses, uh, really the two two main definitions is one, being, I am here whether that's private or public space. And uh, I don't want to be forgotten. You know, the, the homeless situation that uh, really the physical presence of this protest was to, was to really bring to light was that there were people being cast out of society for something really intangible of value. And really what that tried to, uh, you know, characterize was the value of human life, you know, all the things that went into it. So we were saying we were occupying here, and we are here. We are the homeless anonymous with tents, and we are not going to be forgotten. We are here. Um, we can't afford private space to make our own kind of niche in this world, so we're going to come into the public light and say we're here. And then on the other side, um, I also noted I also noted that uh, you have to remember what you do and do that well. That's an occupation. You know, living life is a full-time occupation, and if you're not taking that very seriously, you simply are out of the game. And uh, again, what you said was really our heartfelt sentiments going into you know general assembly that we want to listen to each other, we want to you know formally present our thoughts to each other so we can get all the parts of reference, all the information bits, and see what we have. You know. Let's build something, you know, and really the most counterproductive part about it is it ends up becoming that litigation. It, it, we lose sight of that that end goal. And uh, really it, it, it hurts me inside when, when that gets torn down from others who just want to build something else. You know, I, as I said, it was really, it's really hard for me to put those 30 days into three paragraphs for all the work that I've seen other people do. And I validate that just being here today. I wouldn't be here without anybody who were there with me. You know, that conversation cannot happen if I say, hey, did you talk to this person about what they did? Did you talk to that folk about what they were doing? You got to hear all of that. And at the General Assembly, we just we're building we, we need to be building on those conversations we need to know where each of us are coming from i personally don't know everybody in general assembly so i i feel that my work isn't done there you know, my work isn't happening there i'm only reporting well hey you know that's how these things get started and honestly you know uh, I think some of the resistances that we talked about earlier is that, you know, as a friend of mine named Jack Reed is an expert on consensus, and he wrote a book about it, and he said that you're going to run into little burps and anomalies from people bringing their, their values from their previous, you know, life to the General Assembly, and that hopefully over time the, the culture of it will slowly kind of change that. You know, the people who are aggressive or um, maybe are overbearing or feel that they need to fight for, you know, their opinion at all times, even if it's irrational. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, I have a hope for it at the, you know, there's certainly a light at the end of the tunnel as the culture of the group develops 
in such a way where you have to be sincerely concerned about, you know, making sure that everyone is heard and making sure that everyone feels safe to truly express themselves, you know, and also can find ways to express themselves absent any kind of aggression or meanness or whatever, because that's the ways that's the way that, you know, uh, the old system, you know, perpetuates itself is through force, not just physical force, but mental force. And, you know, you could say even spiritual force in the in the aspect of literally beating people down. It's not just physically. You know, you've got to really go into it with the, with the desire to be completely in tuned with everyone there. Like you said, a symphony is an excellent example, you know, totally a symphony of people you know, and just like a symphony, there's so many different instruments that make different sounds, but when unified towards one purpose can make something greater than any individual in a solo. And I will final finalize my, uh, I guess, this interview for myself is uh, any directions forward right now. And uh, what we need to keep in mind is that uh, we do need to know where's the bounding box in this path that we're building. And we need to listen. We need to keep our eyes and ears open. Uh, it's really, it's really something that uh, a friend of mine said there, who was also doing uh, security detail. He goes by the name of Frank. Uh, he pulled me aside one day and he said, "You see what's going on here? This is a, this is a spiritual war. At the end of the day, it ain't about money. It's, it's about, it's about what you are thinking and doing, and it falls back to, uh, kind of an ideal." situation um, that's building here is that this is all about mind share it's, it's not about your physical assets anymore we've passed that old world sentiment that we need land in order to have potential but now it's the ideas that we have and uh, a good analogy uh, that I'd like to leave with uh, leave with some folk here is that if you're a fan of astronomy um, not astrology astronomy of the stars, of planets, and nebulas, and whatnot, is that a likened to our movements on Earth through the ocean, this vast emptiness, yet this, you know, question, this, this really beckoning, is that in order to cross this, you need to understand the devices that you need in order to get across this. In order to build a boat, you have to understand, you know, buoyancy and frankly what water does well how space works and not to hold this back in is that there's only really two rules there that's heat and light as simple as they sound is as complex as they are that uh with heat um, which is just the transference of energy uh, with heat you can see where stars are and how they puncture through this space heat energy and of that energy Things, uh, things, just general things can be uh, born of planets, even of that star, nebulas, um, and like heat, ideas are radiant, that they push energy into the space that our minds occupy, that's reality. Um, and another device of heat is light. Um, as heat travels through this space, you see where it comes from. You see how strong that light is, not only in distance, but just energy being produced. So like ideas, um, communication perpetuates that idea, like light perpetuates the heat. And with 
of those ideas, you know, communication's key. If you don't have communication, the, the light never gets seen. Um, and people need to remind themselves of that. I, I've I've been doing that for many, many years right now and has guided myself uh, intellectually to be prepared for what Occupy Detroit is now heading and really what's going on around the world. People are awakening and learning to communicate. And not before in history has the world globally has ever spoken. Um, now we can find our brothers and sisters in jungles and deserts valleys, rivers, caverns, everywhere, and that we have different stories from different points in time conversating about the same exact thing, and if we keep our eyes and ears open, we can hear and we can see what is being said, um, and if you're a person of history, you realize this is this is what history is telling us to, to construct you know, even biblical times that this has happened and will happen again and again. If we do not learn from what was done, listen, and then move forward, that we already are standing on the widest platform to say whatever we want, and that all the other, I guess, steps backwards was mistakes that we needed to learn from. Not so much stop and change direction, but we needed to learn and observe what was happening. And uh, for those listening out there, please, please keep your eyes and ears open. Thank you. Thank you for being on today, and uh, you're listening to V Radio. All right, so I'm sitting here in a car right now with a couple of people who are part of uh, Unite. Was it Detroit United? Unite Detroit. We are an affinity group working in solidarity with um, Occupy Detroit, Occupy for all, Occupy Everywhere. Um, we uh, do not claim to be representing Occupy Detroit. We only speak for ourselves, as anybody in this movement should well know by now. Right. So my interest, obviously, in having them on V-Radio in this particular interview is that um, they're both you know, active activists here in the Detroit area. And um, as a result, uh, we're going to have a little chat while we're making our drive to Occupy Lansing, where there's going to be a big summit of the, of the different groups. We're going to get together and talk. I'm hoping to have video footage of that and audio. So I'm going to have my other guests here introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Helen. As you can see, Helen has a lot to say. <laughs> I need to latch that Okay. Whoa. So we're going to have to make a quick stop. Okay, so we were just having an interesting conversation while we were um, pushing the hood down to be sure that it didn't fly up and um, block us and then therefore kill us, because that would make this radio broadcast a lot less stimulating to people who were tuning in for hearing something other than us dying. Um, we were discussing a little bit about the Home Shopping Network, because um, I said that I might have to threaten to make someone watch five years of it. And then we got into an interesting conversation about the, the problems that... Um, uh, fancy here has with the uh, idea of the libertarians wanting to deregulate everything. Uh, yeah, and basically my point has is and has been that um, deregulation leads to greater subjugation. Um, basically, when when you take limits and controls off of things, you free corporate entities who are now persons to enslave. Um, labor and uh, to to um, 
maximize the potential output of labor at any cost to laborer, uh, which includes child labor and, frankly, slavery, which is the real goal of capitalism, um, is uh, to enslave persons, human beings, not not just people. People are your paper entity, and um, human beings are actual persons. So yeah, I guess basically then you mean that the, the concept of capitalism in of itself is, has slavery kind of inherently built into it. Is that what you're getting at? Uh, it, yeah, it does. And it, it, it promotes that as an ideal. It, um, it, it seeks always to find the most efficient means of utilizing um, human capital. And the most efficient means of utilizing human capital is to pay them nothing. Um, and to feed them only enough to keep them alive. Uh, and that, by any definition, is slavery. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. We talk about that on V Radio all the time. Now, Helen, you had a little bit of something to add to that, didn't you? Or um, More than anything, I yeah, I, no, I don't. <laughs> we're going to pause for a reason. We're going to pause. Right. Sorry, I got distracted. Uh, yeah, we are. The subjects of... Um, exploitation of, of workers, um, you know, human capacity to commit to labor has, um, and, and, and surplus of labor, since we've moved past and improved, actually since we started improving upon the basic agrarian model, um, has been a major push since the foundation of the industrial age and um, and even before that uh, even when we were a largely agrarian society um, excess capacity leads to exploitation the reason that tribal structures don't have to deal with that is because they are functioning at a subsistence level they, they do not seek excess capacity um, they have no use for excess capacity, and um, frankly, we don't either. Now, um, to further along, actually, because there's there's one thing I broke about my typical uh, stuff that I, I do on here is anytime I bring a guest on to V Radio, whether I'm pre-recording it or doing it live, um, I usually ask an activist if they're you know like basically any new guest actually not always activists. What was the precipice for you as an activist? What was the moment that made you become an activist? Or was it something you were raised into immediately? Or is it like, was there one thing you can think about that made you go from being a guy, you know, watching American Idol and eating junk food to being someone who wanted to improve the world rather than just being part of it? All right, so my background is that I was, I was raised in an upper middle class home. Um, and uh, probably just, to, despite the the um, the wishes of my parents, um, but because of the way that they ra they raised me, they encouraged me to think and to be intellectually engaged. And I think that the result of that, as as part of my upbringing, they, I I don't. I, it also, um, you know, I don't know where really it came from, but I have these blue-collar 
values that are that have been instilled in me through some fucking miracle. Um, I, I I think that a person's value is directly tied to their capacity to commit to action, and um, so for me, the integration of intellect and and action, it's it's one thing, right? It, it, you you think something you should do in accordance with that thing. Um, you know, my my parents also raised me in a church, which I rejected because they taught me to think. You know, um, and because I read the book, um, my I, I I both credit them and blame them simultaneously for uh, what and who I am. Um, because you know it's this nature nurture proposition. Um, a lot of a lot of a lot of it is just my nature, um, and the other component is that they encourage that with their with their nurture. So basically, you had the fortune that you had parents that basically raised you um, under the precepts of critical and analytical thinking being important to who you were as an individual. Correct, and then um, I I added upon that through my own analysis that committing to action is as important as your capacity to utilize your analytical thinking. If if the thinking doesn't lead you to action, you are inert, and therefore your thought is inert. It's not so much I think, therefore I am, as it is I do, therefore this is what I am. It makes perfect sense. One second. Okay, so now once again we're here, and um, I'm going to ask Helen to give the same answer to the question of what made her become an activist. You can actually hold this in your hand just like a microphone, Helen. Okay. Um, I think that just always being a conscious person, <clears throat> I saw needs that needed to be filled and jobs that need to be done and felt strongly that I would be the one to do it because who else the fuck is going to, basically. Um, I started out as um, a women's activist, which is really what I do most of the time, um, and uh, particularly for women's health, and that's what my job and my training are in, and so that's sort of where my passion lies, and that sort of overlapped into stuff for um, Occupy and now Unite Detroit. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so now we kind of have a background of where these people come from, and it's an interesting point is that you'll notice that people come from different kinds of um, activist backgrounds who end up in Occupy movements. Um, lots of different ideologies are covered as well. Um, in fact, that's an interesting question I'd like to ask both of you. If you had to assign yourself um, a political ideology or system of governance that you prefer, whether it be communism, anarchism, socialism, etc., 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 um, once again, understanding that this is just a word that we're using as a guideline to kind of give people a basic idea, nothing that you're going to be held to. It's not a straitjacket, but just to, as a tool of communication, if you want to give a few moments on that. Um, I identify as a social anarchist. 
Um, I believe that the tribal structure is probably a much better way to live, and we can do that. Um, working together and allowing uh, for other people to depend on each other is the only way to probably preserve real independence and actual personal freedoms. Um, that I think are paramount to having a decent life. Excellent. Now, when you say a tribal structure, do you just mean in the way that we govern ourselves, or are you talking about full-on anarcho-primitivism? I'm actually down with full-on anarcho-primitivism, but uh, I think it's fine if other people are, you know, interested in seeing that manifest in whatever way that they create for themselves and their community. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that people need to be, um, you know, caring for each other with each other and you know being able to do that would allow us to um you know have our own self-governance that isn't going to be dependent on something you know much larger and oppressive excellent excellent yeah i have i've always said to myself if i wasn't a venus project like i guess what you call anarcho virtualist like um activist i would be an anarcho primitivist that would be my next choice so, um, all right, now that means uh, same question for you, Fancy. Um, I guess, really, uh, technically, you would probably lump me in with the anarcho-syndicalist, um, but I like to call it pirate. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I race sailboats recreationally, although I do not own one. I crew on several. Um, I work as a precious metals buyer, and I, um, I have been bearing arms since childhood. So, uh, and and I, I believe in, uh, you know, uh, uh, you vote with your action, and you, and we're all on this ship together. And so, those are, those are my precepts and concepts that I function under. Um, and there really, I don't think, is an organization based on what I think and feel. Although I do closely align with the anarcho-syndicalists and the primitivists, um, I've I've been saying since I was a teenager that the only way forward uh, is to is to somewhat regress socially, in that we we the fossil record proves that we function best on a collaborative model, and that we um, automatically align along affinity with uh, you know pro the proper memes um, we we all wind up towing a line together and we align along the work that we do okay so it, when when you're contributing to something that's that's what you are doing and that represents what you are well, excellent. Yeah, anarcho-syndicalism is probably one of my favorite of the anarchist uh, concepts as well. Um, there, in the the Venus Project, when people ask me to identify what we suggest, um, I usually say it has some things in common with anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-communism, but it is neither of those things entirely. But um, anarcho-syndicalism in of itself, I have to say, is probably definitely one of the more... Um, uh, at least in my opinion, feasible systems. You can certainly live in an anarcho-primitivist society. The problem is, is as the Native Americans found out, um, if somebody does have technology, they're probably going to show up and, you know, and deal with you. That's actually why, um, deal with you meaning in the negative sense, like the Ayn Randian sense of, um, we're going to just take your shit because you're not a cool person, or rather, you're not a 
advanced enough to have your resources so you don't have a right to them is the crap that Ayn Rand said to people. How about, how about anar- anarcho uh, futurist uh, slash pirate? <laughs> Arr, every time I hear that, that's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, no, that's awesome. I'm not trying to make fun of you at all. It just, just so happened you had to say pirate and everybody has my, to say R. My skin is so thick, I don't think that um, you could offend me. Well, that's good, because we don't offend people here on V-Radio, except for bad people, and you're not bad. So, <laughs> any case, um, all right, so... Now, I guess the the other question that I mean, and well, you know, as you said earlier, you were representing yourself, but you know, you do stand in solidarity. I mean, you, I mean, just to be sure, I guess the reason I wanted to be sure you're comfortable with this question is, how did you learn about the Occupy movement, and you know, um, what you know, kind of give the story on how you became involved, and this is once again stating this is just his opinion. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily reflect the opinions of Occupy Detroit or small animals. All right, so my my affiliation with Occupy Detroit um, and Occupy every motherfucking where, and I know you don't condone use of curse words, but, hey, I'm a sailor, so suck it up. Um, my affiliation began uh, because I was monitoring um, the output from Anonymous on the web, and I became aware in spring that they had something big in the works and I kept my ear to the ground um, in order to be ready when whenever said action started taking place um, I, I when as soon as I saw the uh, OWS go up I instantly recognized that this was what they're talking about and um, that this action was going to be important and huge. I didn't recognize that it was going to be global, but I knew I needed to be involved locally, and I started um, notifying the local members that I knew of of the Wobblies, the IWW, um, that this was big, it was in the works, and from that point, um, they made sure that I was notified of any other leftist groups that were acting in this direction. So my my first involvement with Occupy Detroit was at the very first meeting at Macaui revolving around starting this movement. And from that point I joined um, I joined the locations working group that helped to determine um, that we would utilize or, or, you know, create the potential of a list of places to utilize for Occupy, um, at which the GA decision was made um, to use Grand Circus Park for that purpose. Yeah, I remember the Grand Circus Park camp. Now, you said something about the Wobblies. Is that the same people who did the Wobbly Kitchen who provided all that awesome vegetarian food? It is. It is. Um, they are an international workers' movement. They've been around since right around the turn of the century. Um, they are completely radical. They have been continuously targeted by government. Um and uh, they work also in solidarity with the Zapatistas um, and other uh, communist-aligned organizations, although most of the individuals I know associated with the Wobblies are 
some brand of anarchist tinted red. Well, yeah, they could be. I guess you know, I'd be interested to talk to them at some point about that. If they, you know, they might consider themselves anarcho-communists. Um, I I can't speak for them, but um, I think that's the general sentiment that from from what I observe. Sure, sure. Now, um, Helen, uh, same basic question. You know, how did you learn about the Occupy movement and kind of give the story about how you got involved? Um, well, I was um, trying to think of where back I really, hmm, how far back do I want to go? Um, I'm not going to go that far back. Um, but uh, basically, I... Um, found out about it whenever Wall Street went up, sort of expected things like this to be happening around the world for some time, wondered why they hadn't, um, and then once, you know, we saw what was happening in Wall Street, I, it was pretty obvious that this was going to start happening in other places, and I just sort of looked around until I found people that began organizing and jumped in and said, hey, you know, I want to help, this is what I do, um, and, uh, Ended up with a little bit larger job than I originally had volunteered for, but um, that's okay. So, um, but yeah, that's about it. Excellent. Now, the Occupy Detroit situation in particular has gone through a lot of evolutions, um, not the least of which being that now we're not at Grand Circus Park. Um, I guess uh, my question would next be just to ask you guys, um, as people who participate, once again, not representatives, um, if you had, you know, like if you had some thoughts on where you think um, it would be best that Occupy Detroit go next, like what do you think that they should evolve into if you had your say? Wow, this uh, this is um, there there is a lot of discussion around this topic um, and, and what the OWS movement is, where it's going. My feeling is that in Detroit, before we can even really say we have a movement we need to reestablish community because community has been fractured and fragmented and just torn asunder by uh, the economic realities um, that have been uh, actuated because of the capitalist exploitive system that we currently operate under um, we, we, we have such high crime in these neighborhoods that neighbors no longer speak to one another. There is no community. There are neighborhoods, but they don't have neighbors. Um, so first and foremost, in, in my opinion, um, the major push needs to be to reestablish community. We need a village back before we have a city, a country, a nation, anything. And one of the, one of the mechanisms um, that I think can be most effective to help being reestablish that community is community gardening. It's it's as simple as growing plants. Because once we involve neighbors um, in a project where they are committing to labor next to one another, it doesn't take long till you look up and see whose shoulder is next to yours and know that they're your ally. Um, and establishing those alliances is the foundation of community. Um, it, with, without that, 
there's no basis to have a movement um, because we just they, we don't have the numbers. If we're the 99%, then 99% of us need to be involved and active with it. Um, uh, on top of that, another important direction and also a, a component of the community gardening um, is to establish independent infrastructure so that we are not reliant on the established systems um, for our sustenance and our ability to exist, um, which is fundamental on such a basis that it shouldn't even require a movement to do this. Um, energy independence is another big component of this. And also um, cooperative business models being promoted are a major component of this. Once we've established these precepts and um, gone into community education and development on, on these um, and, and made them a reality, then I think we're ready to start making political moves. But until we establish unification and community, we're nowhere. That's an excellent point. Um, we discuss that frequently on V Radio, which is the, the issue being that uh, people have kind of uh, lost any sense that they're part of a community or even like part of a culture in some ways. Uh, when you get into the, the studying actually about how this uh, system came about, um, it becomes very clear. I mean, I, I bring this up all the time on different recordings, but maybe eventually after everybody has heard me say the name Edward Bernays a few billion more times, um, then they'll get it, um, and he put a thumbs up, is that our consumer society was not an accident, folks. It was engineered. Um, they talked to a sociologist about it to get you know people to believe that their consumption and their consumption of goods you know, was an expression of their freedom. Uh, he did the same thing with getting women to smoke cigarettes. He used psychology to get women to think that smoking cigarettes made them free and independent, and then people start dying of cancer. Um, so, not going to go into that rant too much, other than to say, oh, go hold on a second. On that, because Edward Bernays um, was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and um, so this goes back to the beginning of modern psychology. And um, the, one of the one of the quotes that I've heard that I really really like is um, the the. The system isn't broken. It's designed to do this. That's actually an excellent point, and we bring that up a lot, is that basically that um, the, the capitalist model combined with the, the engineering, the social engineering used for negative, obviously, terms, um, put us in a situation where everyone's out for themselves, you know, where you don't, you don't know who your neighbor is because, you know, your neighbor's problems are not your problems. Why should you care? Um, it all goes back to that same playbook that the 1% tends to play by, you know, and that's why I mentioned Ayn Rand earlier, is that she basically vilifies anyone who's altruistic. She vilifies anyone who um, cares about anyone but themselves, and she refers to the people who aren't fortunate enough to be rich as, like, the dredges of society, and almost, and in some cases, like, words that, like, they don't, they're not even deserving of, like, life, you know, like, they're less than human beings. Um, and... Well, yeah, it is. Um, and this is the hero that you see on many Tea Party signs. When you see who is John Galt, you know, it's the same uh, the same person who wants people to read that book 
involving John Galt, you know, um, Atlas Shrugged is along the same lines of thinking that she wants to lead you down the path of believing that the 1% are the heroes and that the 99% are the villains. And I don't think many people are aware of that when they're dealing with rich people in particular, that many of those people subscribe to these kinds of thinking. Um, now, I'm going to come back to Helen here. Um, Helen, do you have any thoughts on what you would like to see evolve out of the Occupy movement? You know, actually, a lot of what I'm going to say, unfortunately, is pretty much what Nathan just said. So I don't know that I have that much more to add to it. Saying that you agree is good, too. Yeah, I agree, pretty much. I'm sorry, I'm the least interesting person to interview today. That's not true. That's not true at all. Everybody's interesting or you wouldn't be on here. These guys, you know, what makes you interesting, Helen, is that you're an activist and that you care about the world, and then I provide media for activism in general, so that's why you're on, so don't worry about it. Now, um, we've discussed a little bit about, you know, the past and the, and the present and then the future of the Occupy movement. Um... I've noticed, for example, that uh, this is kind of like a, a bit more of the past issue. There was a common problem that I'm running into with every Occupy movement that I've studied is that the issue of a division between those who camp and those who do not seems to be a reoccurring theme. It is not unique to Detroit. It's even going on in England. It's going on in other countries. You know, um, do you want to expand on how that feels, like basically what your take on that is, um, Fancy? Uh, sure. It's directly in line with my previously stated stance and approach to life is that you, um, you, your vote or your, your intent, your stated intent needs to be aligned with your action. If you, if you are not aligned in action with, with your verbiage, then you lose significance. That, that's it. Um, and the people who are camping are in, are investing with action um, to the cause, and the people that are sitting at their desks, comfy at home, um, and hacking away at their keyboards, spouting off about shit, need to get their asses mobilized and active, or you are irrelevant. You see, that's basically kind of at the core, is that what I've detected um, is that there's an issue with um, kind of a resentment that comes from people who do camp when people who don't camp kind of show up and they're all full of criticisms, but they're not people that are working. They're not people that are out there risking themselves. And I know that that, I mean, the other side of that is that um, you know, there are people who feel that they can't and then they feel left out and, you know, maybe, you know, like, for example, even I can't camp as much as I would have liked to because I have children. But I also, however, understand that. And when I go into, uh, say, a general assembly to talk about policies about camping, I'm very careful to frame the fact that, you know, that, and kind of hold myself humbly because it's really unfair for people that are not at risk or are not going to be doing the work to be pushing their ideas on someone else. Now, I do offer advice if I think they might try something else, but I think that the, the issue really comes about, like, the, the resentment that causes, for example, you to react that way comes from the people who kind of show up and throw their weight around and, you know, get angry if we don't do what they say. I mean, would you say that's basically accurate? Uh, yeah, my my point on this is that it's about human capital, okay? The, what, what you're willing to contribute is the capital that you bring to the game. 
And if you don't bring anything but words, you don't bring anything. Right. And so I guess uh, I'm hoping that that's something that we can resolve within the Occupy movements in general. Um, we definitely, I mean, it's like to the point now where I'm thinking I'm going to have to actually propose a working group whose job is conflict resolution and morale because we have so much trouble with this. And there's there needs to be like a group of mediators whose job is to do what I pretty much do most of the time anyway, but it should be more than just me. It should be, you know, a group of people dedicated to the purpose of trying to get together and keep people from fighting. So um, I think that a lot of it also just comes down to the fact that we have people who don't really understand where the other person is coming from. And then because we don't meet enough, you know, together as a group, as a whole, it allows people to kind of invent their own motives. Like, oh, those those people over there, they're doing this for this, this, and this reason. And, you know, rather than going to go talk to the people in question, they just kind of come up with their own ideas about it. So um, I think that communication would solve a lot of these issues and also just a sensitivity issue. It's like, really, if if you're not going to be camping, it doesn't mean that you might not have good ideas about camping. But the idea that you um, should be able to use a consensus system to force through ideas that the people who are camping are not comfortable with is just not fair. And that's the, the generalization or the comparison that I made earlier was that we have a 1% that's currently enforcing its quote-unquote, you know, best interests or whatever on us. And um, that that's not exactly uh, conducive to what this movement is supposed to be about. Uh, yeah, agreed. And, um, you know, I, the thing is, no matter no matter what you say, your real vote is in your action. It's it's if you're an activist, the the key component of that word is active. You need to be active, or you, you, you're just uh, you're just a mouthpiece, and your your worth is limited because you're not contributing to the actual facilitation of things changing. Be the change you want to see is a theme I keep hearing and I and I keep not seeing people doing it. Right. Now, um, we've actually had a lot of great conversation here so far and um, I've been really happy to be part of something locally. It's like I was kind of always an internet activist before, which is how I got into EV radio, but it's because there was just nothing really going on in Michigan that I felt compelling enough to get up and get involved with until the Occupy movement came around, and I'm very thankful that it exists now. Um, now, I guess uh, basically, unless you guys have something more to add, we can cap off this interview. Did you guys have anything more? There's, gosh, there's so there's so much there's so much going on. Actually, I I think we could we could probably talk for another ten hours on this stuff. <laughs> Um, well, if you want a soapbox, have at it. People will listen. Okay. Well, um, here, here's here's the deal. Um, we are now being pressed by action of law um, to the point that either that this this is becoming a flight or fight response. And by fight, I don't mean to take up arms, even though I do bear them. Um, I, I mean that we are rapidly being deprived of the very basic right to just speak out against the atrocities being committed against us. And this, um, this Defense Act 
that, that just went through the Senate and is very probably going to be enacted is, is a direct legal step to the United States of America becoming a police state, a fascist state. And I, myself and a, a number of other people that I've been speaking to that I've become connected with through this movement um, are getting ready for our flight response because I'm not willing to wait until they start loading boxcars in order to say this shit ain't right and get the fuck out. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm abandoning my country or my principles. It does mean I'm preserving my safety. Well, after that kind of thing goes into action, it's not the same country anyway. I, I, I think that this kind of stuff has been in action for a long time. I mean, you can track it back through the 70s and even back beyond that. Uh, but the most obvious, um, the most obvious manifestations of it have been um, one, um, the crime bill, um, which suspended habeas corpus, um, and. Then um, you know the Patriot Act, and now the the tag on to this Defense Spending Act. Um, the 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 verbiage in the Defense Spending Act says that um, anybody who is labeled as a potential terrorist threat, which this includes everybody who's on the current terrorist watch list, which just for a point of information, includes anybody who contributes to Greenpeace, PETA, the Green Party, anybody who has aligned with anything that confronts um, the, the current conservative agenda and the fascist agenda taking place in this country is already been labeled a terrorist. This means that if you give a fuck about anything, just one fuck, that you are already labeled a terrorist. And under the verbiage of this bill that is past the Senate at this point and is due to go through the rest of the process, and I believe it will not be impeded by the executive branch or the Congress, um, that, that you will now be subject to arrest and indefinite uh, internment in um, a military prison such as Guantanamo um, or and, and this, is, this is also in the verbiage or can be handed over to a foreign entity meaning a government or a non-governmental external entity um, to do with you as they see fit for an indefinite period and that includes any and all actions they see fit to perpetrate upon you including torture and uh, execution so what we're talking about is the, they've now laid the legal groundwork for uh, 
the fucking concentration camps and um, uh, like all the horrors ever committed against humanity are now legalized under this act. It, it, shall it go through? Right, and our Senate went ahead and passed that, and I think one of the things that I've been telling, like, I actually put this question up on the board of the GA, unfortunately we had to leave early, but I'm curious, and I, and I have no problem with direct action, but I, I was hoping direct action might have some insight, and what are we going to do about this? I mean, Senator Carl Levin of Michigan was one of the people who put that whole thing together, and I really think we should be pounding down his door, I mean, you know, in a nonviolent protesting manner, um, making it very clear that uh, that's not acceptable. I mean, that goes beyond just the issues of economics. You know, uh, something that I've always said to people because they ask me, well, how do you, you know, how can you represent yourself with V for Vendetta? Because that's where V Radio comes from. It's where VTV comes from. Um, I'm like, you know, because that's a violent guy. I'm like, well, by the time the V guy is running around, you know, full-on fascism of the highest order has already taken place. You couldn't have an Occupy movement in that in, in that version of England because they'd round you all up and send you off to re-education camps or just shoot you, you know. So um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the Occupy response, not just in our group, although it makes more sense since Carl Levin's our senator, I think. Um, it also, oh, ironically, McCain. <laughs> you know, Mr. Neoconservative McCain is the other half. I know that they're they're jumping on him in Arizona. Man, I'm glad that guy didn't get elected president, but still... Um, you know, it's we do, this is something we need to pay attention to. And what amazes me is that more people aren't talking about it. Um, and, and that relates to also the the, um, the the kind of like what what we could refer to as the dictator law that our governor Snyder here in Michigan put through. It amazes me how few activists know about it. Like I just brought a couple of my activist friends who do their own media stuff. I'm like, you guys need to be doing shows about this and doing YouTube's about this. And they're like, oh, what is it? You know, because usually. You know, uh, local news doesn't get, you know, the kind of attention that it should. Like, well, this governor passed this idea that he should just be allowed to go into places and um, uh, essentially fire uh, publicly elected officials and replace them with corporate representatives. Um, like he gave Benton Harbor, uh, Governor Snyder did, gave it to Whirlpool Corporation. And then they went ahead and canceled a, uh, what was it? It was, um, they canceled a Freedom Festival. <laughs> Imagine that. So Whirlpool Corporation takes control of Benton Harbor, Michigan, and then cancels a Freedom Festival. You know, um, and it amazes me how few people really know about it. And it makes me worry that you know, because I've, you know they have trouble in Wisconsin as well. You know, how many more states? How many more governors are going to follow this? You know, and I guess another question that I have about it is, what do they hope to accomplish exactly? What are these corporations going to be able to do better? than the elected officials to fix the situation. Do they have any kind of plan? You know, and if they don't, well, yeah, so then let's talk about it. What do you think the plan is? Um, well, the, the, the plan is the same plan that, that, um, that has been uh, at the root of uh, the, the capitalist drive since the onset of the Industrial Age. The, the plan is to um, <laughs> increase efficiency and profits for the corporations above everything else and at the cost of anything else. And um, so that means that this push for deregulation, this push for corporate personhood, is a push back into slavery. No bones. That's what they want. They want you to be their slave. And the difference between 
what we have now under this capitalist regime, and, and let's be clear about this, nowhere in the Constitution does it state that this nation is to be a capitalist country. Nowhere, okay? So this, this is something that is being brought about by these entities under, uh, under the power that they have usurped off the backs of our labor, off of our excess capacity, off of our human potential, off of our human capital. Um, you know, so the object is to minimize cost. Where do you minimize cost first? Always and forever has been labor. Labor is the number one place they seek to, to minimize costs. That means clipping your benefits. That means decreasing your wage. That means that the company comes before the employee. And let's, let's call a spade a spade. Um, uh, a, an employee of a company is an asset, is human capital being exploited to the ends for the means of that corporation, and the, like that, you're you're viewed as their property. If this is not clear to you already, you haven't been paying attention. Um, things like dead peasant insurance policy, or, or what? Are they, not dead peasant. Um, what, uh, they did call it dead peasant in Michael okay. Moore's film. Dead dead peasant insurance policies. Um, are are the most clear um, and unabashed example of this kind of thinking. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to look it up. But basically what it is is that companies are taking out life insurance policies on especially vulnerable employees that benefit the corporation, not the family or the individual um, and when that person expires um, the, the corporation reaps a financial gain off of it and they in no way um, even attempt to uh, direct those funds back to the family of the individual who is then deceased. For those of you who are looking for more details about this, this was all covered very much in detail in Michael Moore's documentary, Capitalism, A Love Story. This is not something we're making up. Literally, corporations are, in fact, taking out um, insurance policies on their employees and, like, basically gambling back and forth on whether or not, the, you know, these people are going to die. Uh, they, they circulated internal memos because one guy was complaining that they were putting too much money into it in one of the corporations because, you know, the, some of the people that they were hoping were going to die didn't die. And, you know, just the, the whole notion of it, though, is, is, like, you know, the notion that they're willing to use the word peasant, you know, that, that they think along those lines kind of pushes back in line that what I've been saying on V-Radio for a long time, which is that um, we are kind of moving on the road to serfdom, so to speak. You know, we're going straight for it because they, the only thing that competes, and that, that's the funny thing that even worries me even more, the only thing that competes with machine labor is slave labor. And as soon as they can get rid of that, we won't even have a benefit to slave labor. You know, the, the state of technology in of itself 
you know, is to a point where either we can allow an elite to use the technology to render the rest of us obsolete, or we, as a species, need to come together and realize that this technology exists and utilize it for the benefit of all mankind. Now, um, Helen, do you have anything to add on anything we've said so far? No, I guess pretty much covered it. Okay, excellent. So... Uh, but yeah, um, we do need to have way more awareness of this, these issues in regards to the stuff that's going on in our own countries. Um, when I ran for Congress in Michigan's 10th District, um, I talked a lot with people who, like, I told them that Candace Miller had voted in favor of stuff that violated the Fourth Amendment, like warrantless wiretapping and stuff like that, and they all said, well, who cares? I'm not a terrorist. I don't care. You know, and they came. Yeah, first they came, right, you know, and they don't think about it, you know, it's like, you know, there was a time when, you know, we were the rebels and the British crown would have referred to us as terrorists if they used that word, and instead it was just a matter of people trying to commit sedition against the crown, and um, what defines a terrorist is another thing that's getting, you know, slowly changed, and as you pointed out, these kinds of things, you know, like in all these different acts, like, you have to watch this closely because... Um, when I was running for Congress, I was paying attention to every bill that was coming through that re revolved around uh, civil liberties, because I was a libertarian at the time. And um, like, the, if they can't get something in, like at one point Cheney and uh, I think it was Lieberman put together Patriot Act Two, which was going to have all of these crazy evil. What was that? Starring Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, Patriot Act too. <laughs> no, not Sister Act, Patriot Act. But anyway, it had a lot of horrible stuff in it, that, and obviously it failed, like it was never going to go through. So that what they do instead is they'll slip little pieces of it into different things. Like there was uh, the Military Commissions Act um, has a lot of elements that wasn't Patriot Act two in it. Um, you know, is in the, the proposal of Patriot 2. And then they'll do it in the weirdest places because they don't want people like, say, Ron Paul or Dennis Kucinich showing up on the Senate or on the, Congre you know, on the House floor to, you, to point out what they're doing. They'll try to slide it into something else. Like there was a bill for the, uh, the budget for, C for the CIA, and then they tried to slide more, you know, um, uh, civil liberty-destroying stuff into a budget bill so that nobody would notice it. You know, this is the strategy that these people use to try to get this stuff passed. And um, unfortunately, I just ran into so many people that, you know, my district has a lot of poor people in it, but it also had a lot of one percenters in it in this weird little patch of Michigan that for some reason is untouched by the economic collapse. I don't get it, but they still got their gas guzzlers and their 2.5 kids and their really big houses and all that. And it was a hard crowd. And people were even offended that I said anything negative about Miss Miller at all. Um, and it was pretty clear to me that they weren't really uh, aware of what she had done. And then even when I told them, they didn't care. You know, they literally did not care. Like, because they're not terrorists, you know, and therefore there's no problem. And they don't understand that the definition of that is changing. I mean, like, I'm involved in the Zeitgeist Movement, and I've already seen a... Uh, um, there's a PDF file that you can get that was circulated to law enforcement identifying anybody who is involved with the Zeitgeist Movement, more specifically the first film, um, that we're automatically members of the armed militia and that we want to overthrow the government and all kinds of other nonsense, which nobody in the Zeitgeist Movement is interested in doing at all. But 
they're telling people this. Uh, there's actually a guy in my local Zeitgeist chapter who's a police officer who works with, um, uh, more specifically, parole. And um, I asked him, I'm like, are they telling you guys this stuff? He's like, oh, yeah, they, they single out all these little groups. And, you know, as a parole guy, they tell me that, you know, I need to watch out if any of the people I have on parole are becoming affiliated with them. And I was like, well, obviously you're not doing that, right? He's like, no, of course not. You know, but, but it is going on. You know, there is, in fact... Um, a move by the government to get law enforcement to immediately assume um, that anybody involved with these groups is going to be potentially a terrorist. Um, I don't do a lot of um, Alex Jones stuff, but he has video of them kind of taking this, pulling this woman aside over, and they really violated her rights, and then they went through her books, and they're like, oh, look at this book. She's got this book, and this book, and this book, and then the cops were reacting like they were told to do so. So, um, did you have something further to add? I do, I do, and in that, um, the uh, the police, when they take that job, they are they swear an oath. Uh, the same is a similar oath to that sworn by all military personnel and all holders of state office, and it is to uphold and to um, to preserve uh, the rights and privileges guaranteed in the Constitution of the United States and to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. This means that when they act outside of that purview, they are in violation of their oath and in violation of their office and need to be regarded as acting as private citizens upon this point, and they are subject at that point to criminal prosecution. That's actually something that a couple of friends of mine who do their own show called um, Fire Team for Freedom brings up frequently is that they call on um, the soldiers of the United States military to recognize and remember their their oath to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, because they basically feel, and I, I tend to agree with them, that we're going to need the military on our side. We're going to need the police on our side as much as possible. Um, the the rebellion in Egypt only succeeded because the military was not on board with the idea of doing what you know their corrupt president wanted. And so, uh, basically, it's, this is one of the reasons I tell activists. I mean, as much as some of them will find it displeasing, we do need to outreach to the police. We do need to outreach to the military because. It's just a matter of time before they're going to help us. And as much as I totally, you know, get that people want to arm themselves, when you study the state of technology, it's going to be really hard for us with our assault, even even with our assault rifles, to be able to overcome, you know, the government if we don't have the military on our side. You know, I mean, that's of course under the impression that the government's coming after us. If we can try to, to you know, through awareness, you know, prevent that from happening, then that of course is the preference. Um, and so. You know, that being stated, you know, uh, I've spoken to police officers who are definitely on board. They understand what's going on. They're doing the job that they're doing now. And this is another thing that I tell people when it comes to Constitution is that uh, we need to be electing our sheriffs because the sheriffs have the highest authority in their county. Um, and most people are not aware of that. 
Um, I was thinking a great thing that the Occupy Wall Street movement should do is try to convince that retired police captain that uh, from Philadelphia who recently got arrested for his um, participation in Occupy Wall Street. They should be having that guy run for sheriff. Can you imagine, you know, what it would be like if we had a sheriff who could get in, you know, basically get in the faces of the local police departments there that are being used basically as corporate hired thugs, you know, to to stand up to them and, you know, in many cases even order them to leave. This is a little-known constitutional fact. There's a group of sheriffs right now that are getting together and exchanging this information. Um, the reality is is that a sheriff constitutionally can throw the CIA out of his county, can throw the IRS out of his county, can throw the FBI out of his county, and essentially it's understood that they're supposed to work through him if they want to operate in his county at all. And this is not known information, and we generally don't recognize the fact that we do vote for our sheriffs. Nobody pays attention to those campaigns, and the money is not in those campaigns either. It really would not take much work on our part to get sheriffs elected who would be, you know, beneficial or benign to what it is that we're doing. We need to make sure that they're competent so that they can do the job, obviously, and that's why I suggested that retired police officer who's on board with us. Um, you know, but there were systems in place to some degree to try to protect us from, you know, these, these kinds of elements within a government that's getting out of hand. And that's why I say to people, you know, um, we, we do talk about the police, but we also need to remember that at some point or another, we need to outreach to these people and get them to realize that they're schmucks that are being pulled in by the system, that they're being, you know, the wool is being pulled over their eyes, and that, you know, if when the time comes, you know, I think they're going to be standing beside us because they're us. They may not remember that right now. Um, but the governments, in order to keep these people against us, are going to throw all kinds of propaganda at them, just like they're doing right now, in order to motivate them to be willing to do whatever fascist nonsense that you know they're going to be ordered to do. So that's why we can't play along with it. You know, we cannot behave like terrorists, <laughs> as much as that sounds silly, <laughs> um, any more than we are now. You know, we cannot behave in a fashion that would give them any kind of justification. It needs to look like it did in the civil rights movement. That is, a bunch of mean people with clubs beating up people that aren't doing anything wrong, because then it can't be spun against us. <laughs> um, i, I got to say also, I today, um, while attending GA, three police officers in uniform on duty, came um, into 1515 Broadway where we were holding the General Assembly. Um, they did not enter the space where the General Assembly was, was taking place. But I personally, while um, participating in the GA, was also exercising my Second Amendment right and openly bearing arms. Um, I had a, a conversation with these uh, three police officers of of DPD inviting them to participate in the movement um, and encouraging them and they said they can't because they're in uniform and they're in an official capacity I said fine then come attend when you're off duty we want you we need you and we know that you are one labor negotiation away from being on our side of the picket so you know we're here for you We'd like you to be here for uh, there for us. What kind of reaction did you get? Positive. Excellent, excellent. You see, that's where I'm coming from. Like, there was actually an Occupy movement that at one point found out that a police officer's house was going to be foreclosed on, and they prevented that foreclosure. You know, that's an example of the kind of outreach that we could be doing to turn the tables. You know, I think it's important to people to recognize, because I know, like, I've, I've gone at it sometimes with on Facebook, like the Occupy Detroit Facebook with people about this, because they, they hate the police in general, 
um, and it, it becomes almost it's like a prejudice, like anything else. It's the, the police, you know, individual the, cops. The police state and the police as individuals should not be confused. The 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 human beings that have the job of being police officers are should not be lumped in with with being the police state. They they are individuals. They ha they're working they're 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 doing a job that we may not agree with, but we have to empathize with them as individuals. Um and they because it's it's a human thing. Right? We're all we're all in this we're all on this spaceship Earth, island Earth, together. And we all have to get along. These are blue collar guys. Um, you know, if it can be evidenced by anything, their uniform usually for for city police is blue. Blue collar all the way. They are us. They're your neighbors. They're they're you if you're a religious person, they're likely members of your church. They are you know, they're a component of the community and they should be addressed on that basis, not on the basis of what their job is. Um it it is difficult to separate a person from their job because their job is the action that they commit to. However, when it comes to committing to action, I mean, we, we've all heard the reports of NYPD officers breaking down and, and busting out in tears because of what they're being commanded to do. And they're doing it not out of an interest to suppress the people. It is out of an interest to keep their pension and their health care benefits and feed their family. That's, that's their motivation. That's, that's where they're coming from. And people need to understand that, that they are not our enemy. They, and, and, you know, military, just, just the same boat, sworn the same oath. They are working class people being commanded to do unethical, unreasonable things. And according to The Hague um, and the, the principles um, of the Nuremberg trials, they are criminally culpable for their actions. However, I think we need to embrace them and bring them in because we can't do this without them. That's extremely true. And, uh, you know, the, the story that you made about, like, the cops that are breaking down because of what they're being ordered to do is also happening to soldiers all over the world who are fighting the corporate war. Um, and, you know, it also relates to stories that I was given when I did my coverage of Ocu of the um, – I was <laughs> Freudian slip. I was about to call it Occupy Egypt. But uh, it was before the Occupy movement, but um, essentially the Egyptian Egyptian movement, um, they, they, they related a story uh, about a guy who was sitting in a tank who was ordered to go ahead and start opening fire on protesters, and he literally couldn't handle it, called his mother while he's sitting in his tank to discuss with her, like, what he was being ordered to do and how he didn't want to do it. And eventually, because the protesters embraced the, the military, the military actively embraced them, and they literally told their president, um... We're not going to help them come overthrow you, but if you send your police out here to shoot them, we're going to be in the way. Um, and more to the point, we're you know we're not going to we're not going to let you kill them or harm them for what they're doing either. And 
it's important. This is an important component, folks. Is that in order for something like that to happen, we can't be spitting on soldiers when they get off of you know airplanes like people used to do in the '60s and calling them baby killers. We need to be talking to these soldiers. You know, there are a lot of great activist groups that happen to be made up of soldiers. Um, you know, Veterans Against the War. You can check in my archives. Yep, Occupy the Marine Corps. You know, these people, if if anything, if you're concerned about the Occupy Kandahar signs, I've seen, um, you know, I, they they know what this is about. They And they're on board. They are not only on the front lines of the war, they are... They are the most exploited people in our in in our citizenry. Um, they they are literally the the hand that that is being forced to act on behalf of these corporate entities for the corporate interest, and they recognize how they're being manipulated in most cases. And the people in the one percent that we're talking about are going to do their best to manipulate the situation to pit us against the police and against the soldiers and we can't allow them to, we can't help them do that you know because like you said police that are breaking down in tears you know that's what we need to be seeing happen we need to essentially make these people feel guilty about what it is that they're doing by being people who are so approachable and so friendly and so mellow that they that it plays on their conscience they're not going to want to you know do it i mean there's a, i was thinking about this i can't remember the, the John pike realizes the error of his ways tomorrow and decides that he needs to uphold his oath before um committing to action um you know, and consider his oath before committing to action, um, I'd welcome him. Right, and that's, you know, and what I was going to say, there was a girl in the camp who always had a kitten, and she's this really small, petite girl. I don't remember her name. What was it again? Barb. Barb, you know, and it occurred to me, I'm like, can you imagine that girl sitting with her kitten, you know, in the middle of a situation where the police are running in there with their, you know, with their riot gear and all of that, getting ready to beat on protesters? Can you imagine the image of that? in the mind of a police officer before he goes in, in there, you know, it's like, it's almost like, essentially, our innocence is what our weapon is against them. That may not win physical battles, but we're not going to win the physical battle anyway. You know, I mean, we do pretty well in, in some of these occupies that have enough people, you know, to do that, but at the end of the day, we really need to break the morale of the police. And, unfortunately... What they're trying to do is to get the police to be angry with us. They want us to think of the, us as, you know, terrorists or lawbreakers rather than as, you know, American citizens expressing their First Amendment rights. And when we get up in their faces and spit on them and call them names, we only essentially help the 1% in their mission of turning the police against us. At that point, we're giving that cop a reason to not feel badly about what he's doing because you just spat on him, you cussed at him, you called him names, whatever. And I get you that people are frustrated, and I totally understand that people are angry about being mistreated by police officers. But this is one of those situations where continuing the aggression is not going to help. If we go up and start breaking bottles over cops' heads or whatever other things I've heard certain you know violent activists suggest, we're essentially creating the army of the 1% because that's going to make cops you know, react in a way of, okay, I'm here to protect myself. These people are here to hurt me. Then it becomes a war. Boxhole mentality. Yes. The bunker mentality begins, and then their concern about our safety completely ends because now we've stepped into a different category with them. Now we're aggressors. Now we're people that are actually going to hurt them. And then they're starting to think about their own families. Man, am I going to get out of this protest with my life? You know, and 
you might be able to, you know, that might be your benefit. Maybe you're thinking you can scare them into not doing their jobs. I'm going to tell you that's probably not a very practical solution. What you're likely to do is to scare them into shooting people. And D Detroit has been unique in that we have had throughout our occupation um, a spirit of collaboration um, with police to keep things peaceful. Um, you know, I, I, the, we, we have regular conversations with the chief of police in Detroit in order to ensure the continued safety of both the police and the, the protesters. Um, and they, they've, they've worked with us. Um, even at points where we have been in violation, um, where we are committing civil disobedience and violating law, they, they have stood aside and given us fair warning on, okay, we'll allow you to do this to a point and then we're going to let you know where this is the line. Um, and we've been compliant with that because we understand the spirit um, that, that they're coming to this with, is, is that they don't want to crack heads on the citizens. They don't want to commit to that action. They, they, they want to allow us our rights under the Constitution. And that's all we're exercising. This is our First Amendment rights, guys. Um, this, this is redress of grievances to the government. That's what we're doing here. And they're sworn to protect that action, and they're doing such here. To the point where when we've spilled out onto the streets with, with a protest without a, without a parade permit, that they block traffic for us, and the chants go from whose streets are streets to whose police are police. And that's, that's what we need to see across the nation and around the world. We need to see collaboration with the forces that they're trying to use to subdue us to our ends, because they are us. That's an excellent point, and I remember seeing photos of that actually on um, the Occupy Media group. Was that initially a cop was like um, kind of yelling at people and ordering him, to, ordering them back onto the sidewalk, and then his superior called him and said, uh, "No, cut that out. Just get in your car, you know, and you know, get ahead of them." And essentially, you know, told him to facilitate the march rather than telling people to get back on the sidewalk. And I think that was a really important point to make. Is that you know, we really, you know, I, I, you know, we really need to remember that these people are human beings, and we're for the rights and the, you know, the, the best treatment of human beings. And in some cases, that's going to mean that we're going to also have to protect the rights and privileges and the right to live of police officers and soldiers who've been conditioned to be, you know, instruments of the system. You know, we have to, you know, who else is going to do it? Who else is going to wake them up? I guarantee you that if we treat them like the enemy then they're going to then in turn retreat us like the enemy and then we achieve nothing you know we can go on like that forever but no matter how many rambo movies you've watched folks an armed revolution if it comes to that and i hope it doesn't you know is not going to work out for us without a tremendous amount of bloodshed and people dying on both sides in our streets unless we can possibly have our military and our police force do exactly what they did to the Egyptian president and say, no, we're not doing that. You know, 
and that's and that's what needs to happen. So I'm actually glad that this conversation turned in that direction because that's a topic that you know I feel the Occupy movement really needs to hear more of. Um, so. In any case, um, this has been an awesome session. I actually need to lean back and relax for a little bit because I have to crane my neck quite a bit to do this. But we can come back to this later. You're listening to V-Radio. Hey, guys. Well, so while I was sitting here, um, uh, Fancy was just bringing to my attention that he participates in a blog talk radio show um, of a lot of topics like these. And as you know on V-Radio, that we're really big about cross-promotion. So anytime there's a good um, program that's going on somewhere, we want people to know about it because the alternative media is not going to succeed unless people know about it in the first place. So go ahead and talk about it, Fancy. Okay, so um, th- this uh, blog talk radio show uh, is called Funny to the Moon. And um, they also have a Funny to the Moon uh, classroom on Facebook. It's really easy to join up with that group. You just search it and add it. Um, the the two guys that started this off uh, are a couple of stand-up comedians who are atheists, and um, we're having these um, because they're separated now by distance, but um, together in kinship. We're having these great conversations that we're stretching for hours, and they they're observation was that the conversation the conversations that they were having were too big to leave the public out of and so they started every day for um, like over I think a hundred days having uh, this blog talk radio show for two hours discussing every topic under well the moon let's just say Um, but uh, you know, from from, a, from an atheist point of view, what's going on? And they they very heavily cite Carlin as uh, one of one of the great thinkers of our time, and uh, as well as um, uh, Robert Greene Ingersoll um, being one of one of their heroes. Um, there, the other groups associated with this and regular Collins are like black free thinkers. And um, there, there are several others um, that all that all regularly call in. But the, the two main guys are Tana Manu and Travis Simmons, um, and they're stand-up dudes. But let me say that anything, anything on any subject that is brought up on that radio show is subject to analysis for its righteousness. If 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 you come with a with a flawed opinion, expect to be picked apart. What was the name of that? One more time for the listeners. Funny to the moon. <laughs> All right, excellent. So I'm here on the uh, Ocu bus. At least that's what I'm calling it. But it's actually one of the Peace Mob buses. Oh, you're safe, Mr. Terrace. This is audio only. They can't see you. <laughs> oh yeah. But either way. Um, it's really awesome just to see all these people gathered on this bus. We basically are taking the bus from the uh, um, park where Lansing occupies, um, and we're taking it over to uh, where we're going to be having our kind of our summit meeting. So it's all kinds of awesome. <laughs> we're going to be putting some music on now, but um, we'll get some more of you guys. <laughs> get back to you guys later. All right, I'm uh, here with Isabella, and uh, which Occupy group are you with? Lansing. With, uh, yeah, from Occupy Lansing, and um, she had some interesting thoughts on the Fed, 
Um, they were a little controversial, but I want to give her an opportunity to explain her point as an economist. Um, generally, my point is that the Federal Reserve, I think it has been um, blown out of proportion as to what it is. Um, I believe it is it is neutral. It is a structure in society, and that, in fact, the people who are using the Federal Reserve maybe are not, well, surely are not using it to the best of its ability. Um, I think the more that we know about the Fed, the more we understand how the money supply works, the more we understand how interest rates and exchange rates and all these different things are constantly interacting with one another, um, then we're going to be better able to take on the issues that we have with the Fed. Um, and, and in terms of you know the Fed being transparent, I have very mixed issues about that. I don't think – it's not that I don't think the general public is capable of understanding these difficult, really complicated issues. They are complicated, but they can be explained to people. I just think that the environment is not conducive right now for educated debate about it. I think that, um, like Ron Paul, for example, um, I think that he brings up some valid points, some issues with the Fed. However, abolishing the Federal Reserve, definitely not for it. If if we did, I mean, most investors, if not all investors, would completely pull all their financial capital out of the United States. How would we get loans to pay for our homes and our schooling and our anything we need, our businesses, small businesses, etc. So um, I believe that's a pretty uh, basic general view on the Fed. Let me ask you, um, okay, so basically then just to be to clear, so you're saying you don't you don't support ending the Federal Reserve, and in fact, you I remember you said that you would block that if it was ever proposed as if it was dangerous, or so can you explain why? Well, money is not real, and I think that we can all agree with that. Money is just a tool we use to exchange goods, and it stores value. It does a couple of things. Um, it's a store of unit, whatever. The thing is that the money supply, because of the fact that it's not real, inf and, and inflation happens constantly, whether we print money or whether we don't. Inflation is a natural phenomenon that occurs with growth. It's kind of like gravity. It just happens. Um, so if inflation is always happening, we have to have some mechanism by which to stabilize the money supply. Now, I'm not necessarily, um, you know, to totally we have to have a Fed, Federal Reserve. We have to have some type of central bank, and maybe it's not a central bank. We have to have some type of structure to do this. I'm completely open to rethinking how we do it, but we need something that serves that function, whether or not it's the Fed. Right. Okay. Well, then, but then that wouldn't have to be a privately owned, operated by the people who are kind of benefiting from it. It could be something designed for the people at that point, right? I mean, actually, you know, federal as opposed to just not really federal. Um, I really think the issue, though, is that yeah, it's not. It is privately owned because it is the banks, and it is the the whole point of the Fed is to regulate the banks. It's like the head honcho bank. So, yeah, I don't actually – I think it should be owned privately because why should we be putting taxpayer dollars into the funds for banks to be loaning to one another? The whole purpose of the Fed essentially is to – so we have a fractional reserve banking system. We have money that is in the vaults of the Fed, um, and they can do things like different policies, different open market policies like buying bonds, selling bonds, doing these different things to influence the money supply and really influence the way banks are lending to one another. Now, if you want me to say something really controversial, I have heard one of my very conservative economists 
professors, economics professors, um, who went to the University of Minnesota, of an extremely conservative school of economics. Um, he actually said that there is definitely an argument to nationalize the banks. Now, I would also not be against that. If you're talking about a different system where we maybe nationalized um, the major banking system, maybe there's some small private banking, but for the most part it's nationalized, because the money supply has so much to do with everything in our economy, yet money's not really real. It's just a signal, kind of, that we use to explain to each other how valued resources are. So, I don't know. I mean, it's not that I'm necessarily all about the Fed. I do agree it has some problems. I just think that if we are, especially if Occupy ever came out in favor of abolishing the Fed, there would have to be a very um, economically sound, rational, practical policy behind that. That's all. So, yeah, so if we're going to – we have to replace it with something. We have to have a solution. We can't just turn it off. Correct. You are exactly right. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm completely – I just don't think we're there yet, and I don't even think in terms of theory. I don't even think enough economists – and it's not just economists that should be thinking about it, of course, but I think that economists have a specific type of training that lets them – it's a very holistic kind of approach. Instead of compartmentalizing this, compartmentalizing this, the way I look at this, all of this stuff goes together, from childhood obesity to people's retirement to classism to the environment. It's all one thing. Um, and so, yeah, I just, like I said, I think that if we do want to talk about, and I think we would actually call it reform. I don't really think we would call it abolishing the Fed. I think we would really call it extreme, extreme or really intense, really I don't know, arduous reform, whatever you want to call it. Well, even Congressman Kucinich said that he just you know, feels that the monetary system itself needs to be reformed. Um, I, I myself uh, advocate a moneyless society, so I'm, I, I don't have an opinion that way or one way or the other, but the listeners are interested. So, I'm curious, by a moneyless society, you would actually literally trade chickens? No, um, I think I advocate a resource-based economy model, which means that um, actually all goods and services are put together. Um, all, all the resources belong to mankind in general. You develop an infrastructure that is mostly automated that takes care of people using off-the-grid technologies. Um, and I think it's, it's also a reply to the fact that uh, the days of selling one's labor uh, in exchange for goods and services are kind of coming to an end because of the advoca you know, advocations and technology, advances in technology. We're kind of coming past the point where we're getting employed and there being enough jobs for everyone is ever really going to be feasible ever again. So if we're going to have a technologically advanced society where jobs are no longer necessary, then we need to make that society for everyone, not just a few people who will be happy to put everybody out of work and have all the money. I actually, um, I very much so appreciate your point, uh, but I very much so disagree. In terms of a resource-based economy, I am 100% with you, and actually conservative economists are 100% with you. The theoretical, this theoretical point we're always moving towards is a level of output that has nothing to do with the money supply or the price level. It's just if we efficiently use all our resources exactly efficiently. Isn't that hilarious that conservative economists and the Zeitgeist Movement yeah. are so aligned with one another? And I think it's fascinating. Um, a moneyless society, money will always come about, no matter what. Why? Because we're always going to want to trade. We all have our own preferences. I am a democratic welfare state capitalist. What does that mean? That means that I believe in a market-based system primarily to solve the problem because guess what? I like this yellow shirt and you like your maroon jacket and that's part of our preferences, right? That allows us some level of freedom to have some 
basis in markets. However, there are distortions in markets. There's all sorts of negative consequences of capitalism. If we have a welfare state, um, which is like a socialist kind of perspective, like on schooling and roads and things like that, we can kind of compensate for the ills of capitalism, and, and it does have them. Um, what else did I want to get on to? Uh, you said something else. Oh, in terms of our, yes, I agree with you. In terms of labor, manufacturing labor and things like that, goods, I agree with you. We are getting to a point where things are becoming very much so automated. At the same time, who works on the automation? Who creates the technology? We need to stop looking at, um, like, the sweat of my labor versus my brain. We need to start realizing that it's the same thing. We need to realize that the CEO is also a laborer. Why? They're using their human capital to create something. We need to all realize that we are the same in that respect. And the last thing I want to say to you is, yes, we are moving away from manufacturing, but economic growth is based on the production of goods and services. So... If we start to go more towards a service-based economy, what if um, we get to a point where, guess what, we have such a high level of regard for art that um, you can make a great living as a wedding singer. And what if we start doing that? You're not polluting the environment, save for your breath, maybe, if you don't brush your teeth, right? So what if we start moving towards that? Or we start making, how about we make way less pieces, articles of clothing, but we start putting more of that service-based, I'm going to customize your clothing. We create less by putting more quality of our, our art. Yes, yeah. sorry. Um, that was a, that was a the hard. problem is is that it's there's a tiny fraction of the amount of jobs that are left over after manufacturing is taken out of the, uh, out of the plug. We're already looking at that in Michigan because manufacturing has died and the unemployment rate is soaring but and the service sector is overwhelmed. In the, short term, in the short term, you're assuming that there's no movement of capital, no movement, no no change. That's just the short term. Well, it is moving. It's moving overseas to where they can employ slaves to do the job until that's not as cheap not cheap as machines and then then we're finished. <laughs> One of our biggest problems with um with the econ- we, we have a budget uh not a bu- well we do have a budget deficit. We have a trade deficit. It's not that trade is bad it's that we import more than we export every single year, and we've been doing it for year after year after year. That's why we're seeing jobs leave the country. We need to start focusing on our export industry, to be really honest with you. Um, and actually, I don't want to say this on mic because it'll give away who I am. But um, Oh, I was going to say you. I would have just Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, just to, to finish off what I was getting at with you, um, and then we'll go from there, but uh, it's just to say, well, first of all, thank you for talking about that. Um, I just, I cover all of the different Occupy movements as well as my work with the Zeitgeist Movement, and that's why I don't have to agree with you to have you on and expose what you said, so that's why it's okay with me. I actually think we agree more than we disagree. It's just how we tie it up, we disagree. Okay, sure. No, and I guess uh, at the end of the day, um, it, I feel that the jobs are going overseas because people overseas are willing to accept a, a, you know, a worse lifestyle than the people here. And that's even taken from the people I know who live over there because I have an international audience. I have a Mexican friend who talked about how there's, you know, it's, they're, they're telling you that you're, you need to be more competitive. What they really mean is they want you to live in a one-bedroom house like my brother and, you know, with all of his kids and all of your kids because that's all you can get and you're willing to accept that for your work rather than... A, a union wage. I certainly agree there is a problem with um, globalization and how quickly it's moving. Globalization is something we can't really stop. We can't stop each other. For, it's like evolution or whatever, you know, the spread of seeds. Um, 
but yeah, I agree with you. There is a problem, um, but it has a lot to do with the exchange rate. For example, China, China, their labor, that's not really where their advantage is in China. It's not their labor. It's the fact that their exchange rate is so low, they're able to do all their capital, do a lot of capital production over there. That's heavily based on capital, not labor, believe it or not. We're starting to find out. And you know what it has to do with? Did you know that American companies are that get contracts in China and other countries, the Chinese government is infiltrating their lobbyists and getting them to fight for Chinese interests. They'll say, hey, you want this contract? You go send your lobbyists over to your Congress and go get them to fight for us, the Chinese. How, and, that's how they're, and that's how they're keeping their currency. The thing is, when you keep the Chinese currency really low, you make their goods cheaper because you can buy so much of their currency with your dollars, right? So their goods are super cheap. That's a huge problem that's contributing to our trade deficit. You don't think it has anything to do with the fact that Chinese workers live in uh, little boxes and that they don't get anything resembling time off and that they generally are treated like robots? That you, that, I mean, there's a lower cost on employing the average Chinese worker as compared to a 2.5 kids American. I agree with you, but there was also an, a lower cost of hiring American workers at the turn of the century when children were being crushed in, you know, machines. Um, it's not to justify it. I'm just saying it's the reality of it. Um, yeah, they are a lower cost, but I don't think that's primarily the issue. They are not as healthy as we are. They are not as educated as Americans are on average. So when you look at it from that perspective, can they really do high biotech manufacturing? Can they manufacture a laser beam? No. Well, they're, they're manufacturing the parts. Well, but, right, but what I'm saying is, yeah, but there are other high, there are other skilled manufacturing jobs. Oh, my gosh. Am I really? It was just a live stream, a little herb. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll be safe. No, no, no. I was, I was just laughing because I saw myself. Um, um, no, uh, what I was saying is uh, I agree that it's a problem. Um, I'm sorry. I just, I lost, I lost my train of thought on that. Um, oh, there are jobs that Americans can specialize in um, that we just were not. Do you know how many jobs are open right now? There's millions of jobs open right now in this country. I actually. Why aren't they in Michigan? There's lots in Michigan. There are lots of jobs in Michigan? Michigan is actually the number one state for growth in the tech sector this year. Where would you get a job in Michigan in the tech sector? Where do you find somebody in Michigan who has a bachelor's degree in a technical field? I have friends who got out of college with that and still can't what, get a job. What degrees? No, just mostly in computer, but just tech in general. It's it's hard to find a job in Michigan right now. Um, a lot of tech jobs are getting outsourced to India. Mm -hmm. um, Tom, Tom's look around. I mean, I don't know what they mean by high tech. We have to start diversifying, too. If you get a degree in computers, maybe you also need to think about getting a degree in agriculture, too. Maybe you could be an agricultural computer tech. As we become more and more specialized, as we move towards a resource-based economy, if we do get there, on the path to that is really, really high-tech technology. You know, so, um, and these jobs you were talking about, I actually don't know. I, to be honest with you, I should probably look further into the numbers so I could tell you um, where they are geographically. But one of the problems, we have a hard time filling jobs here because Americans aren't skilled enough for the jobs. And we're actually bringing in workers overseas who are highly educated. Our most highly educated workers right now are coming from Africa, last time I checked. Um, so you think it's because they're more educated than we are and not because we pay them fast food wages? No, I'm I'm talking about like PhDs. We don't pay. PhDs. Oh, okay. I'm talking. Yeah, no, I'm talking about like technical technical people who have very high level degrees are coming over here, um, and to take jobs because here's the thing: Americans, yeah, on average, we're more highly educated, but the problem is 
our educational achievement isn't as high because we're not pushed as hard. Our parents kind of spoiled us. It's it's kind of the outcome of being a richer nation. You ha you become more and more kind of lax about things. Maybe our parents kind of spoil us a little bit more because maybe they can give us a little bit more than their parents could. It kind of takes away the work ethic, in my opinion. Um, I'm a teacher. Actually, I teach college. I shouldn't say that. Um, I'm a I'm a, I'm a teacher. And um, something I do notice, I'm very appalled by my students' basic ability to read and write and do math at the college level. Yeah, education in general seems to be getting more and more dumbed down. But I'll, thank you very much for talking to me. <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll talk more later. Okay. Make sure we get your info. So basically that uh, caps off uh, the coverage I did in Lansing, at least on the audio. There'll be lots of video available later. I had a lot of really good talks with people. I uh, ran into some good friends of mine from multiple different groups now. I have to say that uh, my tours that I've been doing of different occupies have been really great. Um, I'm looking forward now to possibly taking a trip to Occupy Windsor. I'm going to have to get other people who can actually cross the border. Uh, had a couple of volunteers to help me with that, and um, it's also my intention to visit Occupy Toledo uh, as well as Occupy Ann Arbor. If necessity dictates, um, we are willing to facilitate a legal border incursion. Okay, <laughs> so if necessary, we're willing to do an illegal border incursion. <laughs> so, in any case, uh, but yeah, we're willing to visit. Windsor, and I'm going to be looking into Toledo, and uh, those are all places that I can reach reasonably. Uh, I'm actually looking into now trying to get more affiliates for V Radio who are willing to do the same kind of content that I'm doing right here uh, in different occupies around the world. So uh, just a heads up on that notion, um, for example, Terry from ZMUK Radio is interested in doing so for uh, um, Occupy Bristol in England. Um, if any of you who are listening would like to be will you know, would be willing to conduct similar interviews to the ones that you've been hearing me do so that I can upload them to V Radio for this series, I'd really appreciate it. And if you do a lot of work, I'll get you something for the uh, from the uh, V Radio store. So that being said, um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And uh, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, please visit my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can click archives and go to lots more shows like this one, um, including my previous show where I did the details about Occupy Flint, um, and I've also had one with Occupy Detroit. So, um, Getting this guy off my basically, uh, get all that together, all that information there. Um, also, you can click on my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet. Um, that and pertain to a lot of the same stuff that we're doing here. So thank you everybody once again for tuning in to V Radio.